Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. You might be able to notice here I wrote, go fast, be kind. So you can kind of tell where we're going to go because there's a lot. Um, <laughs> but I'm excited about it. Who am I? Well, you should know above all, you're my mother. I'm 50% you. Isn't that weird? Genetics. Good morning, everyone. If you don't know me, my name is Ryan. I'm the pastor at this church. And if you do know me, my name is Ryan, and I'm the pastor of this church. I do not have a conditional identity. It is the same yesterday, today, and always. Um, I made a new friend recently. His name's Ollie, and Ollie is, uh, he works on a lifeboat in Cornwall. Does anybody know where Cornwall is? Cornwall's in the southwest of England, which is a little island off the coast of Europe, as many of you probably are aware. Ollie's my age. Ollie loves heavy metal, and Ollie has more tattoos than me, so I think he's very cool. And uh, I was recently connected with Ollie because he's entered into a discernment process to become a priest in the Church of England, which I think is really fascinating. We've talked about it a lot in our community, like, where are we in this country when it comes to Christianity, when it comes to faith? Um, and, you know, that's different depending on where you're at in the world. Um, different countries are in different stages of understanding Christianity or the presence they have in those places, depending upon their heritage, who first settled there, or, or whatever it might be. Um, and England's in a very interesting place because we can, you know, like a lot of Europe, it's kind of what we would say is post-Christian. They're probably, you know, a generation or two ahead of where we are probably going, if we're going to be honest. Uh, about the American church. And so it was, it was interesting to, to, to talk with Ollie and hear his process of like, how, why? Why are you doing this? Why are you going to become an Anglican priest in this kind of post-Christian society when a lot of his friends think he's a little bit crazy for doing so? And we had this really wonderful conversation. And um, recently he, he posted something online asking a question about why, uh, what do you perceive is going on behind this uh, like people claiming spirituality, but rejecting Christianity, okay? So spiritual Christian. And it was very interesting to see the responses. You could almost tell by the responses which camp someone already finds themselves in. People that claim spirituality say, well, it's more freeing and Christianity feels very confining or judgmental or they've hurt a lot of these people groups and people that claim Christians say, oh, well, people don't want to be held accountable and they don't, you know, they don't really want to be bound into the tradition or whatever it might be. And it was interesting to me because we all have a certain starting point by which we perceive words like spirituality, words like Christianity. And I was reflecting a lot on that because I think it has a lot to do with this journey that we're on right now through the book of Colossians that we're calling this series to the holy and faithful. Because what we find in the first century, this, this little uh, church, church may be the entire church of Colossae may be the size of our church, maybe smaller. I mean, this is early, early in the faith. Um, but they too are struggling with what does it mean to be faithful to King Jesus when there's all of these other ideas swirling around us. And the church in Colossae, the church in Galatia, these other churches, they had this temptation to go, yes, Jesus, and then this other thing. And they were adding 
things on that they felt kind of filled out a really healthy spirituality or a healthy religion or whatever it is. And that's the context in which Paul was writing to them. And I think that that resonates with where we are because I think uh, our generation, I'll say, so I'm 37, I'm like the oldest millennial. And then there's those micro generations. What's the micro generation for you, Jenna? It's like Xennial or something. I don't know. It gets weird. It's like, I don't know. If you remember a time before the internet, you know, if you actually downloaded Windows 95 or if you received AOL CDs in the mail, you're probably a, an older millennial. <clears throat> um, when, I, when I think about that spiritual but not religious or Christian and an indictment against spirituality, I, as I was kind of pondering that, I realized like our generation and the generations coming up behind us, we've been raised in this materialistic society. What do I mean by a materialistic society? I don't mean just having lots of stuff, although that's very, very true. The 80s were very good to us in the worst way, right? What I mean by materialistic society is that there was a general consensus that there is not really a spiritual realm. What's here is all there is. It was kind of the rise of new atheism. There was like this idea that like, yes, religion served its purpose because it kind of helped answer some questions about how the world works and it gave us a sense of morality. But now since the enlightenment, we've got science, we don't really need religion and religion continually was pushed to the outskirts. I think there was this huge shift in the 20th century where there was this idea of the, the materialism of the world as it is, is all that there is. And I think that that worked a little bit for older generations, the boomers, the greatest generation, because they got stuff and stuff made them feel secure. Um, but when it came to our generation, I think there's this sense, there, there's a vacuum of like, well, we know there's got to be something more than what's apparent to us. But because our generation hasn't had good guides that were able to name that inclination deep within us, that there is something more, we've kind of reached for whatever we can find. And so I think it's not just staking our claim, are you a spiritual, not religious person? Are you a Christian person that's going to be like fighting against this new spiritual revolution that we're in right now? We're, both sides, I think, are to blame and both sides have some beautiful things there that, that come into that conversation. But I think it, it, what it really, uh, what it helps me to recognize is the need for us to have deep examination of what we're really talking about when it comes to our journey with Jesus, to bless the things that we find in, in our generation, in our brothers and sisters and our friends and family, that there's this yearning for something more, but then to come alongside of them, not only to, to work through those things in our own lives, but to help other people to become better guides. And I think this is where we're going to be heading today. When, whenever we are tempted to drift toward either rigid legalism or reckless sensationalism, we must choose the third way of careful allegiance to Jesus. This is kind of where we're going to go. A lot of things in my life I tend to think of as spectrums. I don't know why I'm wired this way. I think it's a lot to do with my personality that I'm very cautious when something is very clear. I don't like when things are clear because that usually means that they're too overly simplified and that someone's cheating me out of something. So I like to hold these tensions. And if we almost imagine, this is where I get to play professor, there's this spectrum that we're going to be dealing with today. And on one end of the spectrum is legalism, which we've talked a lot about in this series and, and others. But on the other side, we're going to have this place of sensationalism. And what I want to do today, using Paul's... Saint, oh, cripes. This is, I'm like, I ran out. Sensationalism. You know. 
I wanna talk about this spectrum and how this plays out today using Paul. And then I wanna talk about how we're called to transcend this whole thing to something bigger and deeper. And I'm going to go fast and I'm going to be kind, even though I've already used seven minutes and 54 seconds of my time. So let's pray and then I'm gonna read the scriptures to us. So Heavenly Father, we testify to the truth that you're here and that you're with us and that you're doing things beneath the surface that none of us can pretend to understand or name, but we can only experience those things. And Lord, so much of the language that we've been gifted is just kind of helping to to give some sense of direction and understanding, but it doesn't bind by any means what you're capable of doing. Even when it says in the scriptures that all we, like you could do so much more than we can ask or we can imagine. Like there's this thing beyond our understanding and our comprehension. And Lord, we come here to find language that helps us to name the story that we're living right now. And God, I pray that even now our hearts would be softened to receive truth that goes a little bit beyond words. And that as we receive, we're transformed from the inside out. We begin to understand you a little bit differently. We see ourselves differently and we begin to perceive the world around us different. So God, I ask even now, would you be ministering to each one of us in the way that we best know how to receive from you? So may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So in Colossians, we've, we've seen this grand narrative. In Colossians 1, 15 to 20, Paul gives us this, this Christ hymn, which I think is kind of the apex of this letter. This is who Jesus truly is as the king, as God incarnate. And then from there, he moves into saying, because this is who Jesus is, this is where you're now located in God's story. And so the reality of who Jesus is gives us a place. It gives us an understanding of history. It gives us an understanding of our own story. And then last week, Jonathan did a wonderful job of of looking at where Paul is kind of telling his own story. This is why I contend for you. This is why I love the church. Then he's saying, you know, we are moved to become part of the body because we recognize who God really is. And what Paul starts to do now is he pivots and he begins to, to readdress this, this situation in Colossae where they're being distracted by these other philosophies and these other religions around them that the Colossians, just like you and I, we hear these really interesting things in culture and we're like, ooh, that's, yeah, maybe, maybe it's like Jesus plus that thing. Maybe that's what really helps me to live a healthy spirituality. So we're gonna, I just wanna, I'm gonna break it down a little bit and go through some of these and, and kind of draw out what I hope we see is this spectrum and how we're called to transcend the whole thing. So this is Colossians 2, verses six uh, and seven. And I think we can almost see this as like, this is Paul's thesis for his whole letter. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. And I love, I love just this little, this little vignette right here because we recognize that our response to the gospel, the good news, that everything is different now that Jesus has been made king. It's our response to the gospel in a way is something that we receive. He says, just as you can leave that up, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, okay? So you have received something. You didn't manufacture it, okay? 
You didn't just well up something within you to agree with some tenets. Like you received this, this idea that Jesus is now Lord and that has done something to you. But it's also something that you give yourself over to. So continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith, overflowing with thankfulness. So our faith is both something that we receive as revelation from God, but it's also something that we put some energy into. And I think that's one of the things that's been most impressive to, this, to me this year as we've been speaking about allegiance is we have to get some skin in the game. Our faith is not some one and done status that we you know, prayed a prayer 30 years ago and now we're good, but it's more like a garden that we're constantly cultivating and we're tending and we're listening closely to our faith to see what does it need in different seasons in order to thrive. And it's this both and relationship that we have with God that helps us to stay true to who he's calling us to be. And so Paul in this next passage is going to begin to identify these two extremes that we find on this spectrum that I think are alive and well today. And they come down to these fundamental human questions of like, who am I in the sense of the freedom to be who I feel called to be? And how do I belong? So almost like individuality and belonging. We all have a deep desire to belong, to find our place in the world, to find our people. But we all have this deep desire to know who we are as individuals. And I think that that's really what Paul's beginning to examine. So this is, um, the next portion is going to be 8 to 15. Paul says, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. Okay, you're probably already confused. There's a lot of big phrases there we'll get to. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So there's a lot of really clever things that Paul does here. He's, Paul's really hard to study sometimes because he's so brilliant that he grabs at all of these different ideas and he kind of jams them together and he loves word games. And then there's this moment in one of Peter's letters where he's like, I don't even know what Paul's saying. I'm pretty sure it's true, but nobody really understands him. And so if, you, if this is too much for you, it's okay. We're going to get through it, and we're going to go piece by piece. So in that first bit, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. There's the word for this takes you captive in Greek is syllagogon, and it sounds like the word for synagogue, okay? And it doesn't translate well into English, but the, the early readers reading this in Greek, they kind of would understand, like Paul's giving a little wink to this whole legalistic Jewish institution that is the synagogue, because the major temptation in, their, in this early time was Judaism had a very clear moral code. There were rules and regulations about everything that would like help them uh, to know exactly what to do in every situation. And the Jews that had believed that Jesus was Messiah, there was a temptation to kind of go back to that. 
But for a lot of pagans that were receiving the good news of Jesus, they actually found Jewish legalism really attractive because it was a really clear moral code. And how many of us, that's the kind of person, we actually really want someone to tell us what to do. We want the rules and the regulations. And so there were a lot of people when he's saying, don't take you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. He's saying, don't fall temptation to this legalistic notion of what religion is because it begins to replace Jesus as the center of your faith. And the two major things in their day are maybe things that you and I don't struggle with in following the Torah and being circumcised. How many of you are circumcised? No, just kidding. (laughs) Boo. (laughs) But the temptation was, oh, these these Judaizers, they were coming along to Paul's churches and going, oh, Paul gave you half a gospel. Yeah, Jesus is Lord, but you also have to follow the Torah. You also need to get circumcised and then you're really saved. Then you're really part of God's people. And that's the thing that's driving Paul crazy because he's saying, no, I gave you a whole gospel. And so he speaks about these elemental spiritual forces rather than on Christ. And there's different ideas of what he means by this phrase. Some people think he means... um, the prevailing spirits, the, the pagan deities that were ruling over the world. That was a common idea in Judaism. So they're thinking about the Greek and the Roman gods that you learned about in the fifth grade, you know, like Zeus or uh, Athena or Ares or Aphrodite or whatever. Like these gods are still alive and well and, and they're taking you captive because you're following those. But there's also this idea that might be like the basic assumptions of how the world works. The philosophies that human beings create when we do not believe that there's a God. One of those things, I think, for example, is kind of in the new atheist movement, this idea that I had mentioned earlier, like religion's purpose is to explain the world and to give us a sense of morality. And now that we have science and reason, we don't need that. And I think any truly faithful people, this isn't just us, I think this is true of Jews, of Muslims, of Hindus, of Buddhists, they would listen to that and go, wait, you think this is useful? <laughs> you think that my, my faith, my religion just helps me to make sense of the world? If anything, sometimes it just makes the world more complicated. And I don't actually know what to do because it's, that's not, it's not about what's useful, it's about what's true. And so there's those kind of assumptions that we have about the world in a lot of modern philosophies that kind of put us in the wrong place when we're engaging with the ideas of Christianity. And then in verses 9 and 10, he begins to repeat some of those tenets of the Christ hymn to remind us, basically, no, 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 Jesus is all-sufficient. Jesus doesn't need anything else to know what God is like or what wisdom is. It's not Jesus plus this thing. Many of you know I'm very passionate about teaching the Enneagram. I think it's a wonderful tool for just gaining some language about how we move and operate in the world. But by no means is it the, the, the place of salvation. Like, that doesn't save you. Self-knowledge doesn't save you. But I think there's all these things in our modern society, in our modern culture that we believe, those are the things that are gonna save us. If I can wrap my head around this set of rules or this type of morality, then maybe I will find myself a whole human being. I actually read this really profound quote uh, this week that I'm still kind of wrestling with, and someone said, "In, in our modern era, it's not licentiousness that's the primary sin, it's vindictiveness that when people kind of move away from an understanding of the world through a God who forgives and then in turn we forgive, we become vindictive, we become hyper-moralists and we end up judging people compulsively 
because there is no sense of forgiveness. And look what's happening within our society. It's increasingly being ripped apart by this false left-right narrative, right? We continually dehumanize one another. We actually become hyper-moral, that I have my standards, and if you do not meet my standards, then I, you are canceled, you are written off, you are diminished, and, there's this, and it's, this, it's horrible. It's not that the world's becoming less moral. It's actually becoming more moral but in the sense that there is no forgiveness, there is no grace. And we find Jesus being all-sufficient as a way of truly saving us from that. So many of us are wired to want rules and regulations to tell us that we belong, that we're good enough, and that we're safe. How many of you, if you're honest, you're that kind of person? You just, you're like, just, just tell me what to do. Just give me the rules. Give me the map. Give me the handbook. You see, many of us are actually wired to that because we want to know, what does it mean to belong? I need, the, I need the boundaries. I need the parameters to know if I'm in or if I'm out and then I, what I need to change. For some of us, we worry, what if I'm not good? And there's like some sort of like, you know, invisible test in the sky, this ledger that's constantly measuring every single thing we do to decide if we are good or if we're not. And we're trying to live up to this level of goodness. Or some of us just really want to feel safe. Because if, if I don't understand things, or if it's just ambiguous, then I don't feel safe. And I don't know what to do. And I need to retreat from the world. So many of us I think are wired to need boundaries and definitions in order to find our place in the world. And the reality is a lot of religious institutions and movements actually cater to that tendency within you. I think there are a lot of religious movements, there's a lot of philosophical movements that actually take advantage of that part of your personality. We think about classically, we think about fundamentalism, okay? Which was kind of a move through like the late 19th century, early 20th century. And it originally started as like, here's the brass tacks. These are the basics of Christianity, the fundamentals. But quickly what happened was it became really rigid and boundary and all these things. And it's become this phenomenon that I think um, my coach and I, Justin, were talking about this on Instagram Live on Friday. That fundamentalism isn't the things that you believe, it's the way in which you hold your beliefs, which is why now we have, we have fundamentalist conservatives, but we also have fundamentalist liberals. Because it's that tight-fisted, I need to have these things clear, and if they're not clear, then I'm not safe, and if you're not inside of the boundaries that have already been prescribed to me, then you must be in the wrong. And we find so many institutions actually cater to that, and they say, no, no, we'll think for you. We'll do the work for you. We'll tell you what it means to be a Christian. We'll tell you what it means to be a human being. We'll tell you what it means to be an American. We'll tell you what it means to be a patriot. We'll tell you what it means to be on the right side of justice. Whatever it is, it's like, by no means should you have to learn how to think because we're going to do the thinking for you. And so before long, some of these really good tools that we have in religion end up become, taking center stage. Um, the Episcopal Bishop of Central Florida, Greg Brewer, has become a friend and a mentor to me. And he was telling me one time that he was over at the cathedral downtown St. Luke, and he was talking through the priests about this particular service they're going to do. And they're like, they're just talking about it, and they're just going, we just, we just really want to get the liturgy right. We just want to make sure that we say all the prayers in the right order, and we get the thing, and we cross the thing, and do the whatever, and they'll can't. And he goes, okay, yeah, but you know this is about leading people to Jesus, Right? 
And they went, yeah, but can't we also make sure that we get the liturgy right? And he says, yes, if it's in service of leading people to Jesus. See, a lot of people kind of import into Anglicanism and Episcopalianism and get so in love with the smells and the bells that it's easy to forget. And that, but it's not solely an Anglican thing. We see this in all sorts of religious movements where these really amazing things, I think sometimes we see it in Pentecostalism and sometimes we see it in the New Charismatic Movement where there's an initial hunger and desire to know God, but before long, we start to make these rules and regulations and we fill in the gap with all these theologies before long that are taking us away from Jesus and become more about the institution itself. And what this ends up doing is it holds us captive and it holds us away from God. And I think that's where we move from religion to religiosity, where it becomes about rules and regulations, it becomes about morality. And we find ourselves like those early Christians, tempted by this religious legalism. And so Paul goes on, and he actually gives us the other end of the spectrum. If this is kind of what we've been talking about, he's gonna briefly mention some things that give us the other end of the human experience. Okay, so in verse 16, he continues. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. So there was this idea that the tabernacle, the temple, the festivals in the Jewish calendar, these things were just shadows of the really real thing, which was God's reality, which was the spiritual realm. So you, you kind of, you go through the process of these celebrations and, and the festivals and the liturgy only because it's helping you to think into new ways so you see the really real thing that's what God is about. But again, so often we get trapped by the thing right in front of us and we think that that's God. You know, we think that if, if I get this right, then I'm behaving myself and saying, no, no, this is supposed to lead me somewhere deeper, truer, and better. So for in, or, uh, do not let anyone, this is the weird bit, do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. How many of you are worshiping angels? Anyone out there? Okay, good. Anybody delighting in false humility? What does that mean? I'll get to that one in a moment. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen. They're puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They've lost connection with the head from whom the whole body supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. All right, what is he talking about? Okay, so he's kind of mentioning here, okay, in this kind of, there's this legalistic mindset where we get so caught up in the rigmarole and the rules and the regulations that we actually miss why those things are there. And Paul's always saying, he's like, it's not that the law is bad. It's not that the festivals are bad. It's not about scrapping those things. It's letting those things be what they're there to do, which is to help us to enter into relationship with God. But then in verse 18 and 19, he, he's this very strange, do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. And this kind of brings us to sensationalism. So in a little bit of history, in the second century, 
there was a guy, his name was Montanus. And Montanus was a convert to Christianity uh, from a pagan religion. And before long, he started leading some retreats where, where he'd take some people, they'd go out in the desert, they'd starve themselves, they'd have these ecstatic experiences, and they'd start prophesying. It was called the new prophecy. And before long, Montanus had a huge following of people. It was very, very stylish in the second century to go out into the desert and starve yourself and then have these crazy hallucinations and start prophesying as if this is what God is actually saying, this is what God is actually doing. And it was a huge problem in the early church. And before long, Montanus came along and he said, wow, you know what? Like my prophecies are so proud. I'm the paraclete which is I'm, I'm the Holy Spirit incarnate. Like Jesus was the, you know, Jesus was the son of God. Now I'm the Holy Spirit of God. And it, like all throughout Christianity, very early on, people started to follow this idea. So what Paul's saying here was shorthand for something that was happening in those first couple centuries of the church was that people were so adamant about escaping, you know, stringent religiosity that they'd go out into the desert and they'd just have these crazy wild experiences and they'd be like, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm hearing from the Lord and all these things are happening and here's what God's actually saying to us and here's what he's leading us to. And he goes, and I love that Paul says, they're puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual minds. Now, how many of us, when someone speaks a lot about how they're healing, hearing from the Holy Spirit or that they're having these crazy experiences, you go, oh, that must be the most spiritual person, right? So often we think if it's wild and it's crazy and it's out there, that must be what God is actually doing. But Paul says those are unspiritual people because they've divorced themselves from the head that is Christ. In the second century, Eusebius of Caesarea wrote about Montanus. He said, he became beside himself and being suddenly in a sort of frenzy and ecstasy, he raved and began to babble and utter strange things, prophesying in a manner contrary to the constant custom of the church handed down by the tradition from the beginning. So if some of us are on this end of the spectrum, we want rules, regulations, we want to conform. Some of us are so desperate for spiritual freedom that will chase ghosts in the desert to escape conformity. And this is the sensationalism. This is alive and well in the church today, friends. These are the nonconformists. These are the people that wanna rage against the machine. They wanna rebel against the systems and the status quo. And again, there's something good and pure and beautiful in that desire. But there's an immature spiritual thinking. And what we've happened, and this is true of even our church, as we claim to be charismatic, what so often happens in immature spiritual thinking is we say, whatever the plan is, God blows up plants. That's what God does. And that's, that's the more spiritual thing. So if we plan for like an hour worship service, well, obviously it has to be five. Like if God gave you a word on Thursday, well, obviously he's gonna change it at 1025 on a Sunday morning. And we just assume that following the Spirit means that we give up on structures. But the irony is it becomes a whole new liturgy. It becomes a whole new religiosity because we've made these theologies that go, no, 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 God doesn't exist within boundaries and expectations and all these things. It's gotta be free and it's gotta be open. And anytime there's expectations placed upon me or on us, we're squenching the Holy Spirit. And so just as there are many church movements that capitalize on some of us, our need for rules and regulations, there's a lot of religious movements that capitalize on this tendency as well, that we want freedom, that we want rebellion, we want escape. We see it in the charismatic movement, but we also see it in the progressive movement of the church. 
Well, to truly be free is to define yourself. Don't let institutions tell you who you are. You get to decide that thing. Don't let other people tell you what God is. God is too far open. So often I hear these things where people say, well, it seems like religious people are so, they want to define something this way, and I just don't think, like, all these, all these theologians, they want everything to be defined, and I just don't think God cares about that. And I'm like, that's theology. You're doing theology, not particularly well, but you're defining God by saying that he doesn't define things. It's all the same. We're doing the same thing. And I think in the end of the day, there is something there about that spiritual but not religious idea to say, oh, to be free is to cast off all the expectations, to cast off the definitions, to truly be free is the more that I can scrap these things, which is a very American phenomenon of what we mean by freedom. Freedom means I get to do what I want, not what we mean in Christianity by saying I get to be who God has created me to be. And before long, what happens in this sensationalist idea, the same thing that happened to Montanus and his followers, is that before long, this idea of God doesn't actually look and sound much like Jesus. Because we've, and every church movement is guilty of this before long. They just more and more steadily begin to make Jesus fit our narrative. And that Jesus wouldn't possibly have these kinds of expectations on us. Jesus wouldn't really have that to say to that kind of person or whatever it might be. And so we find, ironically, at the two ends of the spectrum, whether it were we struggle with legalism or, or where it's about sensationalism and just us having these wild feelings and pinning it on God, that they both actually end up in the same place, that we drift away from the centrality of Jesus and we make it more about our religiosity. We make it more about our expectations and we make it more about our desires. But this This is the truth of what we're talking about. Jesus doesn't call us to legalistic conformity on one hand or anything goes sentimentality on the other, but a rooted faithfulness in him. And so this spectrum, this is a false divide when we think about it from human terms, but what we truly find here that Paul is calling us to, because it's the place of Jesus, is to transcend the whole thing, this rooted faithfulness, that, that gets above the whole, like, do I conform? Do I rebel? Do I play according to the rules? Do I break all the rules? All the, the human experience that kind of lives on that spectrum. He's saying, no, 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 transcend that whole nonsense. Because he says it in verse 20, these things are all destined to perish. Our rebellion against the rules, our conformity to the rules, none of it's going to last. It will not save us. Because legalism and sensationalism, they're still self-righteous. It's still self-indulgent. What can I do in order to behave, to be a good Christian boy and Christian girl, to get into heaven? What do I need to do to have these wild experiences where I'm breaking boundaries and I'm just in uncharted territories? It's still about me. It's still about me. And neither of those approaches to faith lead us into intimacy with the God revealed in Jesus. They just reinforce our own worst tendencies and they don't transform us to be more Christ-like. We become a parody of who we are meant to be. So how do you know the hollow and deceptive philosophies in the world around you today? It's because they tell you that you can save yourself. Well, if you just follow all the rules, if you're a good moral person, then you got it. 
Well, if you just keep shirking off all of the definitions and the boundaries and the expectations, then that's how you're going to save yourself. But both ends of the extreme end up being the same because it continues to point to you to be able to do this. And I think one of the beautiful things about our Christian faith is that we say that it's only in Christ, which is that Pauline phrase that we see over and over again, only in Christ do we find both belonging and freedom. That to be saved is to be saved into a family. That God has saved us into this community. He has brought us to one another. And we have freedom to learn who we are called to actually be. That the more we worship God, the more that we follow Jesus, he transforms us to look more like him. What is freedom in Christ? It means to look more like Jesus day by day. My last church was, uh, was a vineyard church. Anybody here like part of the vineyard at any point? Got one. You probably sang some vineyard songs in the 80s and 90s. Any of those real Jewish sounding songs in the 80s? Does anybody remember that movement in worship? You shall go out with joy and be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills will break forth before you. You know, all that. Vineyard, Maranatha, 80s, 90s, real good stuff. Um, so our, our church was a vineyard, which is charismatic renewal. So there were a bunch of dirty hippie kids in the 70s that just, God was doing something really crazy and wild in this, in this country. And these like dirty hippie kids on the beach in California were bumping into these Episcopal and, and Catholic priests. And they're like, what are, what's going on? And they started to really be kind of this new thing was arising from it. And the core of this movement was a young man named John Wimber. And John Wimber becomes the founder of, uh, of the Vineyard Churches. Um, and he was working a lot with a guy called Chuck Smith, who ended up becoming, um, founding the Calvary Chapel. Any Calvary Chapel people? No? What? Some in the back? Okay, cool. Some of you probably remember uh, the Jesus movement in the 70s. So John Wimber had this really great analogy that was a, that was a good help to kind of keep the vineyard because it was, it was very charismatic. It was really pursuing the Holy Spirit, pursuing the gifts of the Spirit. Like if you've learned anything from me about the spiritual gifts, it's because of my vineyard heritage, okay? So I wanna bless that. But John Wimber gave us this really good analogy. He said, the, it's like the, you, there's this creative tension between word and spirit, okay? Because what happens? Sometimes we're so much word people, like we have such a desire to find the answers and the clarity that we're all about scripture. We're all about the word, but we choke out any of the space for the Holy Spirit to, to work, okay? And it doesn't become about following Jesus, it becomes about following the rules. But some of us are so spiritual, we're so desirous of the movement of the spirit that we actually devalue the word. We devalue the expectations and it only becomes about chasing ghosts in the desert. And what John Wimber said is that we have to have this creative tension between word and spirit. He said, the word of God is like the train tracks. It keeps the train on its path. And to be spirit without word is to have a train with no tracks. And it's just gonna go all over the place, this idea of like aimless wandering. But to have word without the spirit means you've got train tracks, but you've got nothing to run on them. So what's the point? And it was such a helpful analogy to realize, oh, God is helping us to live in this creative tension between word and spirit because that's what actually keeps us rooted in Jesus. And the cool thing about this idea of a careful faithfulness is that sometimes the thing that God is going to ask of you is super conventional, okay? Sometimes it looks like what everybody else is doing. And sometimes 
it's so off the wall and crazy and it doesn't make any sense. But those, those are human measurements of faithfulness. Those are byproducts of being faithful to God. And I've been in church spaces before where they've said, oh, well, we don't, we don't really like to do things the way that other people do. And I'm like, cool, call me in three years because that's exhausting just looking at what every other church is doing and then trying to do something different and naming that faithfulness. That takes a lot of energy. <laughs> and it actually doesn't do the thing that we're here to do, which is intimacy with God. So whether following Jesus looks totally wild and off the books and there's no precedent for it, or if it looks totally conventional, it's the thing we've been doing for 2,000 years, that's a human measurement. Let, it, let the chips fall where they may and just focus on being faithful to Jesus. So what do we do? We need to be careful. What do I mean by careful? It means you need to learn how to think. You need to learn how to feel. You need to be in community. You need to be in the word. You need to have this high expectation that the Holy Spirit is present and working in your life. And to really consider what God is calling you to do. To resist, to, first of all, know yourself. Do you have a temptation to conformity? Do you have a temptation to rebellion? And to kind of lay that before God and to say, I'm going to go where you follow me, but I'm going to take my time. God is not in a rush. We need to be curious. The reason that we find ourselves in these extremes is because we've lost curiosity. Because we're so convinced that we have the right answer and we have the right religion. And the moment that we do that, it becomes about self-righteousness. So maintaining a constant sense of curiosity in our faith helps us to continue to move, to realize, well, I haven't arrived yet. You haven't arrived yet. Let's keep going. Let's figure this out together. We need to learn the language of the Holy Spirit, that God speaks to us in a multitude of ways. He speaks to us from deep within us, but he speaks to us through our community. He speaks to us through church history and the tradition. He speaks to us through the word. He speaks to us through nature. And the more that we practice learning to listen to the voice of God, the more confident we can be that we're faithful to him. And we need to learn the language of the Christian community. We need to be rubbing shoulders with one another helping refine each other, working these things out, bringing to the table, what are these hollow and deceptive philosophies that I've been believing, that I've picked up from all these places because of my personality? And how do I allow other people the space in my life to encourage me, to challenge me, and then to equip me to be steadily more faithful than I was the day before? And I love the way Paul leaves this because it's gonna set us up so well for next week where if it's not about behavior management, but it's not about like this kind of anything goes sentimentality, what is it about? And he's gonna give us some really great language for learning how we are being formed by Christ to be virtuous people. So I wanna invite you to stand with me and, and we'll have the, uh, um, the praise team come up. And we're gonna, we're gonna launch into some, some Vineyard Maranatha songs. Just kidding. And I hope, again, this passage, super dense, okay? Super dense. But I hope today you've heard something that speaks maybe to your natural inclinations and it helps you to raise your sights a little bit higher to say Jesus is all sufficient. Jesus is complete and whole and is at the center of my faith. That as much as you shed one of these tendencies, you find yourself more and more in his presence. So I'm going to pray and we're going to, and we're going to worship.
So Father, I thank you so much for this time, that this challenging and dense word, Lord, I thank you that you, you challenge us to think, that you don't just tell us what to think, you don't tell us what to do, you don't give us these really clear boundaries just so that we feel safe, just so that we feel like we belong, but you actually encourage us to enter into relationship with you and with one another. And I pray that God, um, in this time of worship, would you begin to reveal to us what are our natural inclinations? Where are the places that we go to find what we need to fulfill our desires? And Lord, may we time and again lay those things at your feet with this insistence to be faithfully rooted in Jesus, our Messiah, our King. Lord, we thank you for the challenge to live more day by day into this deep and rooted faithfulness. May we spur one another on toward this vision that Paul has granted us to see you for who you truly are and because of that to see ourselves for who we really are. We pray all of these things in the strong and the blessed name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's worship. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.